Hi, I'm Brittany Martin, Global Industrials Treasury Sales Head at Bank of America, and you're listening to the Treasury Insights Podcast Series. Data is a theme that has come up in every one of our podcasts in the series so far. Putting some of the hype aside, data is really at the core of so much change and opportunity in Treasury. But the question is always, what problem are you solving and are you ready to solve it? In today's podcast, we're talking about the growing need for visibility across Treasury processes and the data that allows the Treasurer to be continually informed. Of course, to leverage that data takes the right skills and IT infrastructure. And that often is the practical challenge that Treasurers spend much of their time solving. I'm delighted to be joined by Jarrett Brune, Head of Data and AI, and Mike Basacco, Head of GTS Advisory. Welcome, Jarrett and Michael. Thank you, Brittany. Hey, Brittany, thanks for having me. Let's dive right in. With the release of GPT-4, the internet is abuzz with the realization of what data and AI can achieve. The treasury world, we've been talking about AI and machine learning for quite some time, but how is data really transforming treasury processes? Jarrett, maybe you can start? Sure, thank you. So I'd like to start with foundation and to understand the same technologies that many describe as driving the fourth industrial revolution are driving treasury 4.0, big data, the cloud, AI, ML, analytics at scale. These are all incredible transformational technologies that provide what treasurers need to focus on, operationally cost efficiency, as well as, of course, visibility in the cash position. These 4.0 technologies can be deployed in tools that literally charm all aspects of treasury cash forecasting, predictive analytics, liquidity structures, data visualization, to name a few. And so it's really taking these technologies and harnessing them for what you need to do. Mike, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I'll go from foundations within the treasury realm. Becoming a data-driven organization really reinforces treasury's mission to find higher operational efficiency. And they can use various aspects of data to do that. But the cautionary tale is data alone doesn't make Treasury more efficient or more intelligent. In fact, that has to be wrapped around what I traditionally call the three pillars of Treasury, and they rest on a strategy, they rest on a series of analytics, and then ultimately the operation that kind of underpins those two other pillars. But the short answer really is that Advanced processing capabilities that go with the data ultimately enable that treasury to form into that 4.0 environment that you mentioned. Thanks, Mike. That makes sense. And I think it's a good lead into the next question I have for you both. How does all of this data play into the broader picture of on-time treasury and the treasury of the future or treasury 4.0? It's a good question. Let me just reiterate, data by itself doesn't solve a problem. If I can relate back to what you mentioned during the intro, it's important for treasury organizations to identify the need and the speed and then match a set of processes that are wrapped in data that meet the requirements. If you think of these data sets and how they coexist and how they are paired internally and externally, identifying the need of that data and then the associated problem for it to solve for, that's imperative. Oftentimes, I speak to treasurers and they advance themselves ahead of the task, meaning they incorporate loads and loads of data, but 
it's unstructured and it tends to be murky, meaning they struggle to transform it into something meaningful. And in order for on-time treasury to really take ownership of its data, we have to have that workflow awareness of where those data inputs can add value back into the process that it's trying to fix or address. Jared, anything to add to that? I think Mike nailed it. When you think about the overall treasurer's goals, what are we talking about here? What does data do? Data, when it's harnessed correctly, provides insight. And when you think of what a treasurer is trying to do, it's about those operational and cost efficiency gains. And so when I think about data feeding on-time treasury, it's almost like imagining a treasurer's dashboard. And that dashboard, for example, would have current information on global cash positioning, forecasting, just focusing on this, and optimization structures, along with full bank integration. It's all in one place. And Mike mentioned, we talk about struggles of multiple ERP, the challenge of unstructured data or data that you can get to it, but it doesn't answer your question. So really, how do we take what Mike called the three pillars and truly organize your treasury around those pillars? You both have said so many of these use cases are starting to mature, but the challenge is not just about getting the data that you need. It's about being able to use it. Jarrett, what are some of the additional hurdles? That's a great question. And it's a question I think all of us experience with our clients on a day-to-day basis. When a treasurer is looking to transform, they can't be afraid to ask the real question. What functionality is missing today? What technology is available to fill the gaps? What does the competitive landscape look like? What are my competitors doing based on my industry size, my complexity? What tools are they using that I'm not? And of course, a true capability assessment. What are the skills of the current team? Some of the skills that we're talking about here might not be on your team. How do you train your team? How do you bring in additional skills? How do you integrate further with the business? What are the gaps? We talked about Treasury 4.0 and all of the technologies that are available. What are our true gaps? The one that is critical and something that we always encounter is complexity of systems. We know the inconsistency and non-integration of platforms is a struggle that everybody deals with. A great example is multiple ERPs. How do I take all of these questions and give real honest answers for where I am as a company and then prioritize where I need to change? That would be my beginning. I'm going to pick up on two things, Jared. First, the skills required. Undoubtedly, that is a challenge of the Treasury organization. One, because there's this relatively immature aspect of data now being compounded so quickly that it's overwhelming. So it's finding that right kind of skill set to figure out, is this a Treasury professional? Is this a data professional? Is it a blended position? Can I rely on the intellectual curiosity of my current staff to harness this data? Or do I have to go outside and reposition my personnel to take advantage of the data? So certainly that's a challenge that I hear quite often and candidly observe. The other element that I find to be challenging for the treasurer and specifically within the treasury organization is the pace of data, meaning how quickly it's being produced. It's almost, you know, it's mass produced. That data then has to find a home, a warehouse. And if the corresponding houses of data are not able to wrap themselves with all these additional attributes, then despite the fact that it's available, it falls flat. 
meaning it doesn't find its way into one or the multi-ERP system landscape that you announced. So there's this almost requirement that not only as the data can use the compound, but we also are seeing a logical improvement of the systems, both sending and receiving, to digest this data and then further integrate it perhaps with the data visualization tool to make sense of it all. I find those two things to be the challenge right now in Treasury with all this data. One is, who do I need to help me within my own organization to make sense of it? And two, are the systems both sending and receiving available in such a way that I can ingest and make sense of all this information? Really like what you both said there. Data is intended to simplify the complex, but the nature of the tech and infrastructure underlying all of that data is complex. So what should treasurers be focused on to build up data capabilities for faster decision-making and transactions? Mike, maybe you can start? If we think about the maturity of use case and the continued challenge, those hurdles that I mentioned previously absolutely apply here. But I think if you take maybe one step further and you start to assess beyond just the availability of the data, is the quality of the data. And does that actually help me? In other words, is there a practical use case for me to harness that additional information that's going to help me become, as an individual contributor within Treasure, or up the finance value chain more confident with the decisions I'm making around that data? I've seen often that there's this inclusion of data alongside the traditional information set. And that additional data is really not contributing in a way that it's part of that original foundation that Jared mentioned. It's just there. And so I think that one of those hurdles is using the power of data so it actually translates into the vision and the objective that the finance organization, specifically within Treasury, is trying to support. They think about Treasury traditionally as this service center. How does the data help Treasury transform into a stronger business partner, accelerating the value chain of finance by providing better decisions that are supported by deeper data sets? Mike, I thought that was great. The one point that I would reemphasize would be the mountains of data. Mountains of data are useless without the tools to mine the data. And it's amazing because we have this conversation almost every day. If data is unstructured, if data is inaccessible, if you simply can't understand what the data says, the data is useless. And believe it or not, that's most of the data out there. So what do you need to do? You need to have the right mining tools so that you can garner actionable insight. That's the key here. How do I turn data into actionable insight. Mike and I spent some time going through a top-down analysis of hurdles to approaching the data problem, the data challenge, the data transformation. And I would just stick to honesty matters in that analysis. What are the wins that matter to you as a company? As importantly, given your limitation, what wins do you actually have the capability to execute? Like Mike started to touch on, treasury transforming into having the KPIs equivalent of a business. What wins can help that transformation and provide momentum to a change in treasury? Those are all things that I certainly would bring into thinking about the data deployment and actually how to avoid the garbage in, garbage out problem. 
really like what you said about turning data into actionable insights. It does boil down to that. And banks are sitting on huge amounts of data within our own systems. Can the two of you talk a little bit about the things that Bank of America is doing to support clients with this data? Jared, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that to start. Perfect, Brittany. We spend a lot of time together. How much time do we have in the podcast is how I'd probably start the answer here. If there's a driving theme by which I run the data and AI team here in GTS, it's really how do we empower clients with their data? Our tools that we develop are developed to specifically focus on using this data to make a difference. And when you think of our toolbox, it's really divided into two sections. We have internal tools and we have external tools. So internal facing tools that face salespeople and external facing that clients get to interact with. And they both do different things, but they're all about insight. And by example, the internal tools are used by salespeople to analyze how to optimize a client's treasury functions. Looking at it from liquidity to FX, how does a salesperson call a client with insight that they might not otherwise see? That's our mantra when we develop those tools. And then the external tools, and just a couple examples are cash flow insights and cash flow forecasting. These are incredibly powerful tools that are designed to show exactly what we're talking about, actionable insights. So to take your data and develop true insights into potentially how do you change your operation. By example, cash flow forecasting is not just an AI-driven forecasting tool. Importantly, it's data intelligence. Why? Because it's incredibly user-friendly and it has all of our clients' spend data. All their payment data comes into one source. So with us, you have the capability to create simple, repeatable macros that give your business incredible transparency into spending. If you want to look at suppliers, if you want to look at payroll, whatever you want to focus on, you have the ability in this very interactive platform. By example, if we have a Fortune 500 company that struggles with multiple ERP systems and ERP integration, and they use forecasting to audit and forecast different things across the firm. Payroll was a great example they used it because they couldn't see it themselves. So when you think of the tools that a bank can provide, think about how it works with your tools and where can we really supplement what you currently have. Jed, you ended exactly where I was going to begin. So to put my remarks in context, you think of a treasury activity, cash forecasting. There's actually two types of cash forecasts. One is treasury owned and is driven essentially off the balance sheet. The other is typically off the P&L and owned by the businesses and consolidated by the finance planning and analysis team. Those two forecasts should point generally in the same direction. Oftentimes, there's quite a bit of variance. And so when clients are speaking to me specifically about forecasting and how these two different approaches have considerable variation, I share with them that at some point, they have to meet. And how do you make them meet? You have to determine how the two data sets that are used to generate those forecasts, where they're similar, where they're different, and how one supports the other and vice versa. The same thing as it relates to what can we do as a bank with our data. And you summarized there at the end, Jared, the supplement or augmentation. The clients have the same data that we have as it relates to the transactions that they are originating and receiving for that matter. They can perform analytics on their data set, just like we can. But perhaps we have a different view of that data, given how it flows through our systems versus how it's coming through there. So when these two things come together, it's exactly as you mentioned. How can we supplement 
their data set in a way that we can help derive cleaner insights and better controls as it relates to decisions they're basing off the transactional data. Well said. There's clearly a substantial opportunity for banks to help clients make real meaningful progress in their data journeys. Along those lines, and within the context of the challenges that we've been discussing, what can banks do to advise clients? Mike, I know you've got some good experience here. What I would say is that, first of all, a do-nothing approach is unacceptable. Why? Because this isn't a wave of data. Instead, if I can use a bit of a surfer's analogy, it's a set of waves. And a set is exactly as it sounds. It's one after the other, after the other, after the other. And it's going to continue to flow. So doing nothing only means that you are going to take wave after wave on the head, and you're going to go deeper and deeper before you're surfacing to try and figure out how long do you have before that next wave crashes on your head. Doing nothing cannot be a strategy as it relates to data. The second thing that I would mention is that determining an acceptable level of inaccuracy of your data is important because it now becomes a starting point. That do nothing mentality now becomes a starting point because you know that data set is going to provide additional information, but imperfectly. But now you've got a baseline and you can begin to measure from that baseline in a way that you incorporate more and more of the data into your analytics so that the outcome is not wave on the head, but now you're surfing down the line. And you've got clear line of sight of that vision and how that data is going to translate into a progression that permits success. Just a small add, and you did this maybe without knowing it, is you weave together all the questions that we just went through. It's reviewing the list of challenges that you have, the waves, the sets of waves, and doing the honest assessment of capabilities and transformational capabilities. And then asking the questions we talked about. What are the gaps to Treasury 4.0? What are the skills of the current team? Do we understand the true complexity and limitations of systems? And then how can banks support you? The important thing here, and I know from how Mike, myself, and Brittany all work together, you're not alone. We are here to help our clients on this journey. Our knowledge literally can only leverage what you see internally. Just because we have very different perspectives that we bring to the table, I think speaking for all of us, we certainly love to talk about data and transformation, and we'd love to help you. Well said. Clearly, through this chat today, there is a wide range of use cases for data within Treasury. One point we haven't touched on today is the opportunity for data to support a more rigorous and continuous approach to risk management. That is a really interesting use case because it covers the full spectrum of both enterprise-wide risks and has the potential to elevate the role of Treasury even further within the organization. So that's what we're going to focus on in our next podcast entitled On-Time Treasury, Prepare for On-Time Risk and Fraud. For now, I'd like to thank our experts, Jarrett Brune and Mike Basako, for your great insights today. Brittany, thank you very much for having me today. Thank you, Brittany, and thanks, Jarrett. I'm Brittany Martin, and you've been listening to Jarrett Brune and Michael Basako. Thank you for listening to the Treasury Insights podcast series. Bank of America and B of A Securities are the marketing names used by the Global Banking and Global Markets Divisions of Bank of America Corporation. 
lending, other commercial banking activities, and trading in certain financial instruments are performed globally by banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, including Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Trading in securities and financial instruments and strategic advisory and other investment banking activities are performed globally by investment banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, investment banking affiliates, including in the United States, B of A Securities Incorporated and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp., both of which are registered broker-dealers and members of SIPC and in other jurisdictions by locally registered entities. B of A Securities Incorporated and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp. are registered as futures commission merchants with the CFTC and are members of the NFA. Investment products offered by investment banking affiliates are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.